This is a McKillop podcast. Welcome to Exploring Curiosity, Resiliency, and Hope, a podcast for times of challenge and transformation. We are excited for your presence as we learn, grow, and evolve from a multitude of voices and wisdom. This is a space for conversations and curiosity, finding ways to be resilient with all that is happening in our personal lives and the world, and maybe finding an embodied hope to live by. We join our host, Trevor, in conversation with Kevin M. Johnson as they explore the intersections of wildness, wilderness, and silence. Kevin is a teacher, podcaster, public speaker, and retreat director who often finds himself crossing boundaries into liminal spaces. As a podcaster, Kevin is a co-host of the podcast called Encountering Silence, with over 137 episodes exploring the spiritual, mystical, psychological, political, and art dimensions of silence and everyday life. Having this desire from the time I was a little kid to kind of ask the question, like, what does it mean to be alive? What does it mean to be me? What's going on? Really taking that seriously. I'm sure we all have that thought, but that thought just haunted me. Uh, and has driven me. As a university professor, Kevin jokingly refers to himself as a recovering academic who teaches online and in various settings outside the university. The focus of his work is the recovery of silence as a way of deeply engaging the world, fostering holistic wellness, and cultivating wisdom. He is available for presentations and talks, as well as to run retreats. His own website, The end of words at www.kevinmichaeljohnson.com is launching soon. He lives on the Connecticut shoreline with his partner and three kids. Well, welcome, Kevin, to the podcast. It's such a privilege to uh, have you on today as uh, I hope we get to explore silence and uh, wildness with you and wilderness and I've been uh, listening to a podcast that you're part of, like with a trilogy of uh, or people or a trinity of people called Encountering Silence, and it's been amazing. So thank you so much for being part of this, and welcome to the podcast. And as we begin, uh, what would you like uh, people to know about you as we enter this conversation? Well, thank you so much, Trevor, for the invitation. I, I'm I'm really excited to uh, have this conversation with you today, and I appreciate that you're a fan of the uh, Encountering Silence. That I can't believe that that's been going on for, we're heading almost four years at this point. It's unbelievable. Um, I've been thinking about what I would like to say today, and you've already laid out some of the topics that we should probably discuss. I would love to get into. What would I like people to know about me? I kind of fluctuate all the time with that. Uh, I think what I'll do is I'll, I'll go with the answer that I've been using a lot online because it's kind of a nice, I like to add a little humor, but I think it actually does get at something in basically my work and my personality. I like to call people, I teach at a university, um, and I like to call myself um, a recovering academic. And so that that's kind of funny. Uh, I've, and I mean that in a funny way. And, you know, we can play around with that because on some level that's hysterical. People look at an academic and they say, oh, somebody who 
you know, stares off into the stars but can't remember to pay the bills or, you know, or the abstract, prof- you know, the absent-minded professor type yeah. or uh, so lost in books, can't meet and talk with everyday people, uh, speaks over their heads, speaks in jargon, says something theoretical, give us something practical, professor, you know, that kind of thing. And there's a piece of me that is there. And so I recognize that. And so I say, well, I'm trying to recover my normal everyday non-bookishness. So there's a, there's a place of that. But then there's also this idea of recovery in the sense of, um, I think that there's something we have lost as a culture. And so that's part of the work I've been. And so it started off with the discussion of silence. I feel our culture has lost that. And I, mm. we've been spending four years on encountering silence, trying to unpack that from various ways. And I do in my work as well. But then I also think there's something about our civilization and our technology and our organization that I feel like we've lost something else. And for lack of a better word, I've been using the word wilderness and wild to talk about that. And that actually comes out of the idea of uh, silence as well. Silence. I walked down the path of silence and bumped into wilderness. And I think the third piece of why I call recovering academic is to point out that I've always felt I'm a person that has never really felt like I fit into any box, any category. And so I feel I'm always on the liminal, the in-between. And at first I thought that was because I was weird. And mm. I might be weird. That's that's fine. I'm <laughs> fine with being weird. But I've also started to realize over the years with my students, with all the people I've interviewed on the podcast, with my own family, with my own uh, wife, who I've been married over 25 years to, um, I think that we're just all in between. That what it means to be a human, if we're really honest, is that we don't fit anywhere, really. Um, And so we're in between civilization and wilderness. We're in between thinking and non-thinking. We're on a process. We're in journey. And so we're never, ever going to fit anywhere. Mm -hmm. So we're on this pilgrimage path of walking to be us. And so I've discovered that. So it's kind of a nice reminder of me. I think if we can just joke around about who we think we are, call ourselves a recovering academic and laugh and then move on. Um, I I think that captures a little bit of my personality and who I am and the balance of who I am. I really appreciate that, Kevin. When I listen to you talking about yourself and your journey, I I hear hear this yearning... I guess, I guess for like integration and then also this yearning for um, awakening to, um, I guess, life and what it, what is it to means to be a human being? Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's, that's very well stated. That's very well stated. Um, I think those are two movements that really move me and have moved me from the earliest of ages. Um I'm about to release some uh, content online and it hasn't gone out. And so you're getting a sneak preview here. I'll, I'll, I'll tell your audience, but I'm Thank about you. to release some audio and uh, I'm not exactly sure what it is yet. I'm still trying to decide if is it, is it another like small podcast? Is it 
audio stuff that's going to be on my website because I'm starting to do more online teaching. Mm-hmm. And I'm trying to decide what this is, but I've recorded the first of and have started to draft out more uh, audio on this actual subject. And in that opening audio, I discuss this being pulled and having this desire from the time I was a little kid to kind of ask the question, like, what does it mean to be alive? What does it mean to be me? What's mm-hmm. going on? Really taking that seriously. I'm sure we all have that thought, but that thought just yeah. haunted me uh, and has driven me. And then this idea of how do you integrate when you find that you have such disparate parts of yourself mm-hmm. that how do you bring them together? And so in the audio, I make the comment that I felt very split be, be, between a thinking, reading, uh, trying conceptual person who really wanted to get lost in words mm-hmm. and stories and uh, some kind of analysis, I guess, or, or meaning making. Mm-hmm. And then Having a lot of time, I grew up, I tell people all the time <laughs> that I grew up, I'm, I'm generation X. So I'm old enough that uh, I'm before the personal computer. I'm before the cell phone. Yeah. Uh, I, I can do those things, but I remember a time before that. And my parents, I, I had a, a, what I call a feral childhood. Mm. Uh, and so plenty of people my age have said that they recognize this. My mom and dad would just, my dad worked. My mom was a stay-at-home mother. And she would just say to me, go outside and play. And she would close the door and literally not check up on me. I could be gone 8, 10, 12 hours. The only rule was come home for dinner. Yeah. That was it. Yeah. And and so I would go and I lived in a suburban area and there was plenty of woods. Mm -hmm. um, And I could get lost. I, I would get on my bike. I'd go two, three towns away. You know, I'd be 10 miles away from my house on a bike. Um, You'd play pickup baseball in a lot, you know, in another town somewhere. Yeah. Uh, I'd climb trees. I'd... So it's funny now because I have kids and I remember, you know, raising kids. Yeah. yeah. I know where they are the whole time. You can track them if you have a cell phone. Yeah. I mean, my mom and dad had no, I mean, I was 11 years old and I was four miles away from the house and there was no adult yeah. nearby. <laughs> yeah. No, but I... that time, I, you know, I, I was, a lot of times I was in the woods and I was like sit and just stare at a tree or Mm. like go off into this wilderness space and feel pulled like there was something magical here. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And it was funny because I was not, um, you know, I'm not like the strong silent type. I'm thin, I'm bookish, I'm nerdy. You know, I was not Mr. Muscles. I was not Mr. Survivalist. Uh, And yet being in the woods, I was alive. And so this weird space of part of me wanting to stay home and read a book all the time Mm -hmm. and part of me wanting to go hide in the woods, that pull is really kind of where I live. It's like that. Um, What do you recall from those early feral days, a time where you can sort of like crystallize an experience of, of, of wildness and wilderness that sort of became part of your epigenetic DNA. Mm, wow, that's very poetic way. Yeah, that's lovely. Uh, a couple, a couple. Um, one that's right now popping to my head and, see, and seems want my attention. I'm going to go with this one. 
there's a couple, but yeah. this one comes out first. There was a, and this is funny. So about, I don't know, maybe a quarter of a mile, half a mile away from my house is where my uh, grammar school was. And you could go up there and I would take my bike and I'd ride up in that direction. And I say up because I'd have to go <laughs> up, up the street. I can still feel the pedaling uh, to go up the street. It was a hill. So I had to go up the street and then turn the corner and go down the street to my grammar school. And you would go onto the school playground where they had big swings and huge slides and monkey bars. And so I had a pretty big yard, but this was even a bigger yard and I could just do all this stuff there. And part of that space was, so that was not wild, right? It was very mm -hmm. domesticated. I mean, mm -hmm. all the trees were cut down. It was an open field, you know, yeah. but uh, on the way I would stop. And at the top of my street was like this old abandoned place that was just left in the woods. And I would go mm -hmm. climb in those, and I was probably not supposed to go in there. In fact, I know I wasn't, I probably would get arrested <laughs> for trespassing, but I climbed the fence and go in and there's an old building, and but there were vines growing over it and trees. And then I'd wander into the woods. So I'd get all like woodsy and climb like I was doing an yeah. adventure in my head. And then I would get on the bike and ride less than five minutes away. And I'd get, and I remember this one day after being kind of woodsy and playing pretend in my head, like talking to myself, thinking there were things going on here. What was going on in this building? Who were the people that used to come here? And making this pretend story and being in this kind of weird make-believe space, getting on the bike and being open and being the rush of adrenaline as I sped down the street and the wind blowing down my face. And then getting to the walking across the lawn of this wide open park space. And I could just see off into the horizon nothing in my way. I couldn't see houses. I could just see a horizon and trees and got on the swings and the swings were facing the horizon. And I just started, and it was one those really big, long chain swings, right? So you could really swing high and go all the way up. And you'd feel when you came down, it would, your stomach would yeah. drop, you know, and I was swinging all by myself and there were no kids there and it was quiet. And I do recall at this point, no planes were flying over and the wind was rushing in my ears and the birds. And I was in this other state and I saw the horizon and it just like the world, just my perspective just opened. Hmm. It's instead of feeling narrow, I felt like everything was open. I was wide open. And what I used to do for fun was you would try to time it. All of a sudden I had the nerve and I would swing and you would jump let yeah. go and jump off the swing. And it was so high. I mean, it really was, you probably could fall off and break a leg because it would yes. swing way up and come down hard. I had a friend do that. Yeah. And I timed it. So I would try to time it so that, and I said to myself, I'm going into the horizon. And I just, and it was like a perfect, instead of up and down, it was like I was going out as far as I could go. And for a few seconds, it felt like I was flying. And that moment there, just that, that moment of I'm flying, there's no boundaries, me, the sky, the universe are one, just mm -hmm. captures kind of that wild, there, it's, I'm not caged, I'm yeah. wild, I'm free. Yeah. Um, and so th that kind of pops in my head now, but there were plenty of times where 
the opposite, where I was in a, in a forest area where it was so enclosed you couldn't see yeah. anything. Yeah. And yet uh, I got lost in kind of a wild setting there. And then a couple times we're climbing trees and you were just up so high looking down in a different position and feeling, again, kind of a one with nature, with birds, with squirrels. I used to talk to squirrels a lot. They didn't really talk back. <laughs> Uh, yeah, it was just, it's just so weird because like I tell this story, you know, and it's funny, people who know me, they know me as a book person. They know yeah. me as like who stayed in school and they're like, you, you're not the type. I said, yeah, but I used to have a switchblade in my bag. <laughs> I had a knife <laughs> and I'd go into the woods and I had yeah. matches. I'd make a fire and I, yeah. I, I did, I would die pretty quickly. I was not a good survivalist. I didn't yeah. know how to camp. I didn't know how to do any of that, but I felt pulled to that in a deep, deep way. Yeah. So what do you think that pulling is like at a, like a spiritual, if you want to say soul level or right. I don't know, or, or even a consciousness level, what, what, yeah. what is, what is pulling you? Like, do you have a, I'm curious. Yeah. I mean, well, I mean, let's be honest. The first answer is who knows, right? Yeah. Um, I mean, I, th I think that's the honest answer. And then I think then what we try to do is all of us, part of the recovering academic of me is to, yes. is to put words on that, is to mm. try to make sense of that. Cause we, and we should, I, I don't yeah. want to degrade that. I think part of what it means to be human is the in-between space is to receive that information yeah. and then make maps, navigate that territory with sure. new words and new ideas so that we can walk further. Yeah. We have an experience mm. and then we want to understand the experience right right so you have this amazing experience with your with your spouse your kids your friends your even your enemy yeah <laughs> you have this experience and then you talk it through you try to figure out you you get theories processes you explain and it all depends on how you want to process it i think my current understanding i would use the the work i'm doing yeah. uh to explain it. And I think the way I would describe it is this. Uh, I talk about in my work when I was in my doctoral program and I was doing research, the question I was asking was how do we know in a religious way? Hmm. And, and theologically, when you say, you know, God, or I know from in my soul, or I, yeah. you know, I, I saw an angel or I heard a demon or whatever, you know, if you're talking about spiritual things sure, and you say, no, what do you mean by that? Because, because culturally, yeah, our knowing sure. has nothing. By definition, our the word knowing in secular culture erases the spiritual, because mm -hmm. that has to be either described as some psychological thing, yeah. a neuron firing in the brain. You know, it's got to be a materialistic yes. uh, thing that can be measured, right? And yeah. and I get why, but. That's my point is th this hence of recovering. I feel like there's mm -hmm. something we've lost here. Um, and so I started to look into this and I started to realize that silence and con contemplation and the yes. spiritual is a way of knowing the world. Mm -hmm. That silence is not in our culture because words and ideas are the central focus. If you're not saying anything, then it's a void. Oh, yeah. And people try and fill it as quickly as possible. Yeah. Right. Even in nature. We yeah. go camping, yeah. and people have their, they have their stereos blaring in this 
It's just amazing. Yeah. Or they'll bring their a flat screen TV and put it on their camper, you yeah. know, and they're, and they're watching the baseball. I mean, and again, there's nothing wrong with watching no, the baseball sure, game. Sure. No. But I'm just like, what? You, you had to bring the TV and the radio with you, you know? Like, yeah. Um, <clears throat> so, yeah. So, I, silence in that setting is void. And when you spend time in nature, everyone knows this. And that's what's funny. I always feel like, you know, I'm talking to people and I'm like, this is obvious, right? You know, like, why, am I, why does someone have to give a talk on this? This is an obvious thing. Um, but if you're in nature, you start to notice with your mind and with your body, if you wet yourself, mm -hmm. um, silence is a way of engaging. It's a way of being present to things. Mm. So that I'm I'm open and receptive to hear what the wind is saying, mm. what the raindrops offer, uh, what the smell of that flower over there is offering, you know, et cetera, et cetera. So it's an embodied kind of presence that then opens. It starts off as embodied sensual, but then mm. you realize that there's something more. And it's interesting you said soul, like this is where the word soul or spirit would come mm -hmm. because there is, if we just take the word spirit anima uh yeah. you know uh that just means it moves mm -hmm, mm -hmm. you know it means movement in, in greek mm -hmm. and so mm -hmm. animals are things that move and it has an animated spirit has something that makes it move yeah and so then we get this idea of this kind of either energy consciousness life force these are the words we would probably use in modern times mm -hmm. and that's where we're getting soul psyche you know, yes. psychology, et cetera. It, it's this inner movement. When body has more than the spirit, the physical, it seems to have this other component. The physical has this piece to it. Yeah. And so then if you're in natural settings, you start to notice that I need silence in order to survive, in order to be, you know, if we went back, yeah. I need to hunt my food or find, you know, find a plant to eat, you know, yeah. gather acorns or something. I need to listen smell, yes. see, touch. I need the silence or I would die. Um, I need the silence so I could defend myself if somebody attacks me like a lion or something. I'd have to, yeah. I need the silence to listen. Um, you know, so we don't have to do that in modern culture because technology does all that work for us. Yeah. So we forget that silence is knowing. And so in the mm -hmm. doctoral program, I real I made the connection. Oh, wait, silent prayer isn't just this mystical thing. It's actually just a basic ordinary, everyday embodied thing that can then open up to this mm. other, you know, and this is where you could have extraordinary consciousness. You could have a trance or a, a vision mm -hmm. or something, but um, it really is grounded in something just very ordinary that happens every day. And it still happens to us. We just don't notice it. We've been trained yeah. to think. And yeah. uh, so I think that call is just the reminder that my body wants to offer me something and the world is speaking and I'm not, I should stop ignoring. And if I want to understand who I am, uh, who Kevin is, is partly, or I mean, yeah, I mean, part, I don't know what the right word is. Kevin is when Kevin shows up whenever Kevin is engaged bodily in the world doing things. Mm. And so the tree and the squirrel and the bird and the horizon and the black hole and the explosion on the other side of the galaxy and the everything, it, you know, is part of Kevin because I'm interacting on some level in a physical way. 
So this is going to sound nerdish and geeky, but it <laughs> it feels like what I hear you saying is moving from an object to object relationship into a subject to subject totally. relationship. I, totally. I wish I could say it in a less. I mean, it's like, yeah, the boundaries of you are more liminal and uh, permeable, but still there in this silence and yeah. wildness. Yeah, I mean, and and so it's completely I thou. It, it's totally mm -hmm. Martin Buber's subject mm -hmm. to subject, uh, and you know that's the beauty of that book, uh, where he basically says, you know, the Jewish people had this relationship. They became aware of that it's not object to object. That truly, when you pay attention to reality, and if you're truly present, it's subject to subject. Mm -hmm. The divine is, is that's and that's what we mean by the divine. It's in that space where the words fail, and and I think this is an important thing to do because it really easily could fall off into weird, romantic, strange ideas of like there's a soul, and it, but that's very it's very disembodied. It's yeah. very kind of like caricature. Our culture thinks that what, that's what religious people are talking about or that's yeah. what spirituality is. And yeah. I try to show, listen, I'm just grounding this. I'll, I'll spend a lot of my time. A lot of my work is just secular culture. I'm not even trying to talk to religious people necessarily. Mm -hmm. I'm just mm -hmm. saying, hey, as a human being, we have yes. to really take seriously that awareness and consciousness has this component. Now, you can be an atheist all you want. You don't think you like God or you don't like any of that. You think it's all joke. Okay, great. I, I'm not asking for belief. I would just like to place on the, on the table that if you really pay attention, embodiment has this weird piece that for generations people have called spiritual. I don't know what else to call sure. it. Uh, the philosopher Pierre Hedo, um, French guy, and I'm, I think I'm not so sure he was a believer. Um, he studied ancient philosophy and he mm -hmm. talked about how ancient wisdom did what he called spiritual exercises. And he said right out front, he says, listen, I'm not asking you to believe anything. I'm not asking you mm -hmm. to join a church. I'm not asking you to think there's a soul. He goes, I just don't know what to describe this inner animated stuff that we're talking about. That's partly consciousness, partly emotions, partly mm -hmm. the body, partly willpower, partly the abstractions of beauty and truth and goodness, partly like all these kinds yeah. of things. Yeah. And so he says, I'm, can I just use the word spiritual? Cause I mean, imagination and thinking and like, yeah. it's this piece, let's use that yeah. word. And then please everybody, I'm not asking you to be a believer. Right. And then he would write yeah. his book after that, you know? Yeah. Um, I'm so intrigued by what you just said and all, we're sort of, we're probably going to do a lot of circling. I don't totally. Know sometimes are, is that the body wants to offer you something mm -hmm. and that you're discovering this something uh, is connected with silence, mm -hmm. which I don't know if a lot of people would connect silence to the body sometimes. Can you unpack that a little more? Yeah. Or even maybe even like, yeah, what is silence and how is that connected to the body? I think this is a really important question yeah yeah so i and i i i agree with you trevor i think what we're going to do is circle all around because i think you're just going to have to come at these topics from various angles and that's all my work does really mm -hmm. is just kind of circling around these topics and rediscovering them and saying oh here's a new way in here's a new way in so 
when I started to do the work on silence, at first, my first initial thought was, okay, I'm doing kind of mystical theology. I'm doing some of the kind of really rarefied abstract thing mm-hmm. that monks and a couple of like mystics through the centuries, some really special weird people, <laughs> yeah. uh, you know, who had visions or maybe levitated or whatever. Yeah, took, Teresa took, of Avila. Yeah, 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 exactly. I mean, whatever. I mean, you can yeah. take take your pick or, or, or I can even hear about, you know, go outside the tradition and hear like the Buddha meditated and then walked yeah. through a wall or, you know, I mean, yeah. Yeah. so you start to hear these things that sound like magic and weird. And our culture just says, well, that's just, you know, dumb. And that's yeah. just shows you they're superstitious. And, yeah. and I, I tell people all the time, that's because we misread mythology and spiritual devotional literature. We don't know what they're saying. Um, mm. <laughs> but that's how I started off. I started thinking, all right, I'm studying weird things mm-hmm. and I want to get at that. And then I started to scratch and it realized, you know, I'd been in grad school for a long time. I'd gotten a master's. I'd studied this stuff for years. And it was like, all of a sudden it hit me like, oh, like, of course, Kevin. Why, you know, are you, how, how uh, blind, how, how, uh, you know, not, not we're dumb, but like how, uh, how slow are you? Like, how, how long does it take you to come on the uptick that it started to realize that all the thinkers of the year of, that I had heard about had mm-hmm. said, hey, if you really want to pay attention to something or if you, you kind of have to get quiet, you have to pay attention. And they would talk about, you know, whether it was Socrates, Plato, yeah. Aristotle, they would always talk about this kind of when the mind got still. And then you would see things, you would see reality, you'd be present to reality. And I started to realize, well, this isn't just trance state. What they're talking about is how the mind works. Mm-hmm. And what I mean by mind is I mean kind of, yeah, I guess, you. consciousness or awareness. Sure. You know, how yeah. awareness works yeah. is that first you can be aware of yourself like us right here. Yeah. This is a very particular kind of consciousness. And then I could be wide awake, not trance-like, not doing anything weird, but I could get uh, suck sucked into, you know, pulled into like, a, like say I was reading a book yeah, and I get stuck and in, pulled into a story. Now I'm not aware that I'm sitting on the couch holding a book. My yeah. consciousness goes completely into the story and mm-hmm. I forget what my body's doing. I forget yeah. that I'm sitting holding a book. I can do that with a movie. I could do that like sewing I could do that while I'm typing and doing spreadsheets. I'm totally in the spreadsheets. I forget I'm in a chair, mm-hmm. you know, so we can get enveloped in our work and in psychology, they talk, sometimes call that flow and everything. There's like a kind okay. of consciousness yep. where you're in the zone and you're doing stuff. So again, there's yep. that, that's form of consciousness. And then there's times where you start off, maybe you're aware of yourself, then you move into flow. And then there's those moments where we, for a lack, I'll use a, the metaphor of modern people, we sure. go offline <laughs> uh. <laughs> where you're just sitting there. Nothing weird happens. You don't have a trance state. You don't have yeah. mystical visions. You don't hear God speak. You know, the earth yeah. doesn't spin and turn purple. You know, you yeah. just for a split second and you we've seen other people have it where you see them and they have the they're just staring and they have that kind of, gla- we call it daydreaming. They're glassy eyed mm-hmm. and they're, if you ask them, hey, what are you doing? They come back to themselves and they go, what? And you go, what were you thinking? Nothing. Yeah. Well, you were just, st- did. what were you looking at? Nothing. Mm-hmm. It's a kind of consciousness where your mind gets 
cold mm-hmm. and you're just sitting there doing nothing. And now that's a kind of daydreaming. And I'm not mm-hmm. saying that's a mystical vision. I'm not, but I'm mm-hmm. saying, look at that state of consciousness. Yes. Nothing's registering and yet you're wide awake. Yeah. You know, and it doesn't look weird to any, we all just see somebody where I call their daydreaming. There's like a, like a pause button. We all recognize it. Right. And then there's whatever the mystical would be, (laughs) you know, like, I mean, maybe it's that with then something added or whatever. Um, So it's these interesting states of consciousness. I started to notice like, Hey, and you asked about silence. Well, what about that daydreaming? Isn't that silent? Because if you ask me to describe it, there's no words for it. What did yeah. you see? I have, I don't know. What were you doing? Yeah. Nothing, right? Yeah. Uh, you know, so that's silent. And then if you're in flow, you could say something like, hey, I was, re-, you know, I got pulled into this great story. Yeah. But, you know, there's really, you would have to describe the story. You wouldn't really be able to describe what you were doing, right? Yes, and, yes. And, and so there, silence, I started to recognize that silence was actually pointing to. There's various kinds of silence, of course, but that oftentimes silence, when people were using it this way, it was a presencing. It was an embodying where when, when thinking stopped getting in the way of being present to the world, and so the tree, the horizon, mm-hmm, my, mm-hmm. you know, my wife hold, walking on the beach, holding her hand, and, and yeah. words drop, and I don't need to say anything, and I just feel here we're one, Mm -hmm, um, mm -hmm. you know, and, and so start to notice that subject to subject kind of embodied presencing Mm -hmm. that is in some of the most profound things in our life. They usually come across our consciousness, usually at birth. Yes. If you've been in the room and seen a birth Mm -hmm. death, if you've been in the room when someone's left, you know, not to be embarrassing to people, but sexual intimacy can be a place for this. Yep. Yeah, yeah. Um, you know, I mean, these places that these are kind of like peak moments where yeah. it really raises for us. We're like, oh, yes. and then we're aware of it. But I think we should just say that's happening all the time, just at a lower level. Mm-hmm. And that our thinking can be so strong, it is louder than what your body's yes. trying to say or what nature's trying to say, because we've been trained from the time you were five years old, we sent you to school and said, think. Yeah, the rational. Think. The rational. And we, and every time you daydreamed or something, your teacher would make you write lines or you'd get detention or, you know, yeah. do this, do this. do. And we've learned it very well. We we think that we have to do something, achieve something, go. Yeah. That's what that rational mind does for us. It allows us to control and manipulate the world. But there's this other kind of consciousness when you're just present to the world and love it. Yeah. You know, you just receive it. Yes. You, you don't put your will on it. Yes. You don't try to color it. You just want to integrate with it. You want yes. to be in that show with everything that's going on. And I think that that's the place where, you know, to use Christian language, uh, I was raised Roman Catholic. I, I consider myself still Catholic. You know, um, to use Christian language, this idea of God, self, and other mm-hmm. merge in that place. Mm-hmm. We're all, we're, you know, we become one there because there's no distinction there. You can't make distinctions. There's no words for it. So it's silent. It's a presencing. Yeah. Presencing. Silence, presencing, presence. Embodiment, you know? Yeah, embodiment. Yeah, because 
there's nothing wrong with our rational mind. No, like, not at like all. Like it's like to 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 seek silence isn't to like annihilate rationality and go into like like you said magical or totally. I don't mean bad pie. Uh, what am I trying to say? A, pi a piety without rationality is dangerous. Correct. Um, but, Correct. And, you know, the rationality's created that we can do this this right. talk. So, right. yeah. Um, but uh, what, what, I, what I heard you say really early on is that when you were younger and in the, in the wilderness, like it was like you were free. Mm, that's right. The, and so the constraints. So... What what are the constraints that you find in life that that prevent us from moving this way? Is it, you know, I would my my answer. You I heard you say civilization. Mm -hmm. Does civilization partly mean empire to you, mm. or how would you talk about that? Yeah. So civilization to me again, like rationality. Yeah. I don't want to say civilization is evil. Okay. And I don't want to say, uh, so for me, I think civil, I mean, maybe someday I might get to that place. At this point, I don't think it's evil. I think mm -hmm. what civilization is, um, maybe the analogy would be like this. Civilization is rationality writ large. Mm. And then empire is civilization, is all the negative aspects of civilization, mm. a kind of a, a deep. So, so in other words, rationality is a way of controlling the world to so that, like you said, so that we can do things yes. and it's a necessary thing. Yeah. If I can't control my surroundings, I can't even put water to my lips, right? I couldn't even feed myself. So of course, of course, civilization, I mean, rationality, control on yeah. some level is a useful and important thing. So we need to think, mm -hmm. organize, do mm -hmm. things. So yeah, we're not going to try to be uh, you know, Luddites and get rid of all of, you know, be out of civilization, yeah. no technology, yeah. no tools. Right. And we're not going to be anti-intellectual and say, never think. Yeah. And that's not what we're doing here. Cause that, that's kind of an extreme thing. That's not what we're saying. I, yeah. I'd saying we're out of balance. Yeah. And so what we've just done is we've doubled down on control. And so mm -hmm. what happens is that starts off where you say, you, yeah. could, you could take a tool. I'm going to do really bad, a sure. non-academic thing. I'm going to do pop academic. All right, let's do this. Okay. Let's imagine human beings coming out of the wilderness as hunter gatherers and tribals. And, and we start to write and start to make uh, cities and start to do agriculture, right? All the beginning of yep. civilization, our history, the development yep. of history. So humans were on the planet for like over I think now the scientific consensus is somewhere between 200 and 300,000 years we've been around, Homo sapiens sapiens. Uh, we were born into a, uh, an environment where probably the species before us had fire. So we've always had fire. We've always had technology. We always used tools, whether it was like a stick or something, and yeah. fire and things to make and organize our world and to hunt and to do our things. And we mm -hmm. kept using thinking and smart. And what happened is the tools got more sophisticated and we started to organize. We started to plant food. We started to do yeah. things. Um, but see, then what ends up happening is that tool, if rationality is not connected to body, is not connected yeah. to a, a way of being whole, that tool left to its own devices, I think, becomes empire. Okay. becomes controlling and broken. And so then what you do is, hey, farming's hard work. 
you know what would be easier? If I use a stick, go across over there, get that tribe to do my farming for me. Let's make slaves. Mm-hmm. And now those people are not people anymore. They're a tool. No different mm-hmm. than this stick. I've yep. now reduced yep. a human down to that. Or, hey, animals, I need to hunt, sadly, or I need to pick, yep. you know, eat this yep. plant. Oh, my God, life. What? No matter what I do, I'm eating life. This is not yep. cool. And in, instead of showing respect to that, let's, you know, factory farm or like, you know, let's sure. no longer treat the animal like an animal. Yeah. Let's no longer treat the plant like a living thing. Let's just yeah. use it like a tool. So for me, civilization is kind of like rationality writ large. Like mm-hmm. we then use that kind of thinking to control the world. And wilderness is that kind of other kind of consciousness that is open as free. And so I think to answer your question, like what's trapping us? First off, at the very basic level, let's start here. At the human level, what's trapping me is me, because mm-hmm. when your mind thinks, it puts mm-hmm. things into boxes and categories and creates mm-hmm. a separation. I yeah. step back from everything. Yeah. What was one a, a one united experience, now I step back, analyze it, label it, break it yeah. apart. I dissect it, I kill it. And yeah. now it's a dead thing. It's useful to manipulate and you know make a map. But the map isn't the territory. And so so on one level, thinking traps me. And then who I am, I become someone who thinks. I think, therefore, I am. So now I'm an ego. And that ego traps me because now I think I'm supposed to be X, Y, or Z based upon how I'm raised, based upon my own psychological predispositions, maybe my DNA, uh, my family structure, my cultural structure, my you know, my religious background, my economic status. All of a sudden, I think I'm supposed to be X. That traps yeah. me. Yeah. So I'm supposed to be a male, or I'm supposed to be this, or I'm so, whatever I think I'm supposed to be. That traps me. And you, when you realize, you can step out of that, and you go, I'm none of those things. Like mm-hmm. that's a piece mm-hmm. of me. Yeah. Yeah. That's a, but it's almost it's a mask. It's something yeah. I do to move around and manipulate. But then that mask doesn't capture who I am. And so I get trapped there. So on a personal level, that's part of the trap. And then on a societal level is civilization, culture, et cetera. While it's useful, it traps us because you're supposed to fit cultural mores, assumptions, et cetera. Be a good good patriotic American. Yeah, be a good American. Canadian or whatever. Yeah, be be whatever culture you're supposed to be in, be whatever tribe you're supposed to be in, be whatever gender, be whatever, whatever you know, um, whatever category you give. So that traps you. And then, you know, and and then there is a little bit of embodiment. Embodiment traps you. You know, I'm limited by my DNA. I'm not going to be six foot two, you know, and (laughs) super muscular and a movie star. Yeah. Uh, I'm also not going to be four foot whatever and an amazing jockey and win all my, you know, whatever, and and win all my races. So... I, I feel trapped there, and I and so then my body does a certain thing, and then you have mm-hmm. some people who feel trapped in their bodies if they identity-wise they say, yes. I don't feel male, I don't feel female, and yet yeah. I'm in this body, and my culture is telling me this thing, and so you have that issue. So you know, so we're quote trapped in a lot of different ways, uh, and I hate using that word on one level because it feels horrible, like it's always negative. I mean, it's kind yeah. of a necessary space. Sure. It's reality. It's reality. It's messy. As long as there's a doorway out. I think Mm. it's only a trap if someone locks the door. Mm. And I feel like when we closed off to silence and wilderness, 
that's when we feel trapped. And I, and I honestly believe why my work in the beginning, I just thought, oh, this is just academic. And then I started to realize this had ramifications across the board. And I more and more talking to people wellness wise, psychological wise, I think a lot of the partisan fighting, a lot of the stuff in culture, Mm -hmm. a lot of religious things is everyone feels trapped. Mm. Our culture has trapped us because mm-hmm. we don't have a model of the mind that says, hey, wilderness, hey, silence. Yes. And those things were naturally there originally. If you yes. wanted food, if you wanted shelter, you had to spend time in silence. You had to be out in nature. You had to do things. And that blew your mind open and you reconnected. What Now we're indoors. I never have to go outside. I can press button. Uber Eats can bring me my food. Yeah. All my food can be delivered. Yeah, I don't even have to talk to another human being if I really don't want to. Um, and, you know, so here we are. I'm trapped inside. So we have nature yeah. deficit disorder now. Yes. Yep. We don't, like you said, you go camping, you bring your radio with you. Yep, <laughs> you don't have to listen right. to the birds, you know. It's so interesting The like we've been sort of circling, like, this is a, I don't remember what journal it's from, but one study shows that if somebody, you know, has the same surgery, it's a controlled experiment. Um, if they have a window in their hospital room. That's right. And there's someone in the bed next to them, the person near the window heals faster. And That's if right. there's a tree outside the window. That's right. They heal even faster than a person without a tree. It's so like, I'm, I always like to, I love, I love our circling. My question for you sort of now is like, so some, I like to offer practical, mm. I, like, do you, would you have some <laughs> practical, like, like, I think silence is scary for people. Yeah. I, I, I wonder, like, I was like you, I was feral. I had uh, coolies in yep. Alberta and, um, so I, I'm not, you know, silence was just lying on the, on the fescue grass, but for you, like. If you if you're talking to someone who's never experienced silence, or even you know uh, wildness or wilderness in the same ways, what practical things would you say to them or encouragements? Yeah. So I mean, what's interesting about this is that when somebody asks me about the practical, you know, um, th- I have two responses. One, there's some very basic things out there. Um, mm-hmm. I mean, I there's you don't have to recreate the wheel. I, it, what's sure. funny is. In, um, if you look up things like trauma therapists and specialists, mm-hmm. if you look at, I mean, there's just so many places whether in wellness circles, psychological circles, yeah. religious circles where they talk about mindfulness and stuff like yeah. these circles exist because we yeah. realize in our culture, there's something missing. Yeah. I find that those things are often couched because I, I tell people all the time, the problem I see is the model of the mind. And that's the thing is we're all trying to explain, well, why do mindfulness or why do trauma therapy or like why? And they try to fit it in this idea of with rationality being the only thing on the board. Mm -hmm. And then they have to explain to you, well, they're like, well, yeah, but the body's useful. So, you know, exercise your body. And they don't really even talk about like, hey, the body knows or there's the there's a consciousness of a kind of knowing and awareness that we should all be naturally doing like that is not the way we frame it and if you don't frame it that way that does twist mindfulness a little bit because then you think yes. mindfulness is a practice that's kind of a rational practice and i'm like well 
sort of. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Well, <laughs> you know, and so yeah. so I say to people like you've probably heard some of this advice. So yeah. that's part of one. And the other part is a uh, good question, Trevor. I'm uncovering because somebody will say to me, well, I'm Christian or mm -hmm. I'm this or I'm that. Yeah. How do I recover wilderness? Because when I go to church, I've been told prayers this. And I've been told mm -hmm. that. And you're saying, you know, spend time with trees. And that feels very Native American <laughs> or something. And like, pagan. how is that, you know, pagan, Native American, isn't that evil or wrong or, you know, and, and I'll have to say to them, like, whatever. And then they'll say, well, that sounds like yoga and I'm Christian, mm -hmm. you know. So I'll, so I'm trying to figure out how to offer for them natural things that would work for them that are just basic, very ritualistic. And I know not the word ritual, normal things yeah. that anyone could do in any religious tradition, right? So I guess what I'll do is I'll start with the first one, the one first, rather than trying to come up with some ritual. So sure. I, the practical thing I would say is go for a walk. Start there. Mm. Okay, so the first thing <laughs> I, is just... I love that. Yeah, just go for a walk, okay? And when I say that to people, go to your favorite place. If you love the beach, walk and listen to the waves. Mm -hmm. If you are near, a lot of us, I live in the Northeast, there's a lot of hiking trails and stuff near me, mm -hmm. not very far at all. So go hiking in the woods, mm -hmm. go to the park. Yeah. Um, try to go to places if you can, it's not necessary, but if you can, try to go to places where it's a little less busy. Yeah. So that you won't get distracted with like really loud, you know, to go to a park sometimes and they have loudspeakers blaring and playing music over the park, you know, or whatever. Yeah. Try to go to a place where it's just, it's open, you know, like, mm -hmm. please try not to put your earbuds in, you know, don't, <laughs> yeah. don't go for yeah. a walk streaming a pod. I mean, I do that. I go for a walk and I stream a podcast or that's lovely, but that's a different sure. thing. That's a different yeah, thing. Yeah. What I'm saying is go for a walk. And just take your time and take some deep breaths, try to breathe well, try to move easily yeah. and just give your attention to say, look around and say, what do I see? Mm. Really just ground it in sensual experience. A lot of people will say to me, they can't do mindfulness, can't do silence. They get panic attacks. They freak. Yeah. I've tried meditating. It upsets me. Why would I do that? And I say, yeah. listen. All the, all the research, you know, all the psychology research, everything. Ground it in your body. So yeah. go for a walk, take a deep breath. If your mind starts to wander, ask yourself questions like, what color green is that tree? Mm. And really try to see it. And then, and then where in the tree, where does that tree give me a feeling? What do I feel? Mm. Like, and where do I feel it in my body? So sometimes I'll say... Yeah. That tree over there that like for some reason i'm getting a feeling in my throat and then i'll and then i'll say is that allergies is it like what is it about the yeah. throat yeah whereas somewhere else i'll say that bush i feel it here in my solar plexus mm -hmm. other times it's all in my head i'll be like i can't get out of my head and that's fine if it's just it's yeah. just an image in my head it's all behind my eyes and i'm like okay yeah. There's nothing wrong. You're just noticing what your body's offering you. And you saying to your body, tell me what you're feeling right now. You know, like mm. let your feet feel the ground as you walk. Yeah. Are you walking hard? Are you walking soft? Yeah. Are you clenching your jaw? Are you not? Mm. Just bring awareness to 
hey, I'm taking a deep breath. I'm letting it out. I'm just letting it out. I'm yeah. being here. Yeah. Give yourself permission. That's a first start. Well, and I really hear also like a a presence of non-judgment of mm -hmm. whatever you're receiving and and accepting it without. I always like to say non-violence too, yes. like not yes. not pushing it away or yes. fixing it. Yes, there's nothing gentleness. to fix. Yeah, yeah, there's nothing to fix. I love that you say that, Trevor. Nothing to fix. There's nothing wrong here. Yeah. If you go and you do this and you don't have some powerful, amazing, exp you know, they hear this, they go off and they're like yeah. bored and they go yes. for a walk and they're like, that was stupid. Guess what? That was totally fine. Mm -hmm. Totally fine. I don't need you to have, I'm not asking you to have, um, you're in all likelihood, if you do this, you're not going to have... The angels aren't going to sing to you. You know, yeah. the, the sky isn't going to split. It's going to be boring. It's going to be very mundane. But the point is to actually notice the mundane. Yes. To well, be present to it. Isn't most of life mundane? In yeah. A way? Yeah. Just like, okay, I'm sitting, yeah. I'm in the DMV. Well, I don't have to do that anymore. A lot of, a lot of the, my DMV stuff is done on a computer, thank God. But, mm -hmm. you know, you have to sit in line at a DMV and I'd just be like, all right, I'm in line. So what's it like? Yeah. And yes. it would be a miserable experience because you'd say, all right, these ugly fluorescent lights, mm -hmm. you know, I'm standing in line, it's uncomfortable standing here, right? But at least I'd be present to how my body felt. Mm -hmm. And I would try not to feed the anxiety or the unpleasantness. I would just be like, okay, I'm having an unpleasant experience. Let's, yep. let's, and whether I'm, <laughs> you know, I can't get away. I have to be in this line. So let's yeah. just, I guess, let's have this experience. <laughs> mm -hmm. And just let yourself have it for a minute or two. If it's overwhelming and you can't be unpleasant, then distract yourself, of course. Daydream, yeah. do something else. But allow your body to feel the unpleasant or, or the pleasant or the mundane. So that would be one practical thing. And then other things would be, uh, you know, I, I just do listening exercises. Mm -hmm. So... I just stop wherever I am and I'll just ask myself, what am I, what do I hear? Mm. So if I look up for the computer and I just go, what do I hear? And sometimes it's the hum of the refrigerator. Sometimes the air conditioner kicks on or the heater kicks on. Yeah. Sometimes I can hear the wind blow, you know, through the window if it's open or closed. So you just ask yourself what you hear and really hear it. Stop, you know, don't talk to yourself about it. Just like ask yourself kind of, I, I'll, I'll ask myself abstract questions. Yeah. So I'll say, I'll hear the wind, and then I'll say something to kind of throw my mind off of balance. I'll say, what color is that? Huh. That is abstract. Yeah, right? That, because that, yes. your mind doesn't know what to do with that. Like immediately the thought is, Kevin, you're stupid. You know, like in my mind knows because I played these games with myself. So it just goes, yeah. Kevin, stop being stupid. Yeah. And then I'll, and I'll be like, no, 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 seriously. Like what about that wind? Can I, can I hear that wind in a different way? Have I mm. not, have I heard it? So the problem is we label it like wind and then we yeah. think we're done. Yeah. And I'm just trying to drop the label and like really, how would I describe that? High pitch, low pitch? Like, mm -hmm. what is that doing to me? Is that irritating? Like, that's fine if I go, ooh, high pitched, irritating. That's good. At least I heard it. Yes. You know? Well, and, and as I hear you talk about these things, it's like I hear you trying to enter into that I-thou relationship. Mm hmm which uh, which I hear you saying is really, uh, it's an embodied experience, like the walking and all the, and then this, it's like, yeah, um, we won't get there by thinking our way to it. Right. 
Yeah. Nothing wrong and, with that. Yeah, yeah. I mean, this is just the moment, and 100%, Trevor. This is the moment we're thinking all day. So this is the moment, press pause on thinking. Now, know with your body. Mm -hmm. Sense it, feel it, you know, and it kind of pick up. I feel like the body, again, I don't know how else to describe it, like a big antenna, just yeah. receiving all the information and receiving more than our senses know. Yeah. Um, here's an example of that. Uh, one of my, uh, who I call silence heroes, one of my teachers that I learned from and met online and had long conversations with is the author uh, and modern day anchorite, Maggie Ross. Hmm. And she told me a story once and it might, and then I think she also wrote about it in a book, but she told me personally this story. And I think it's in her writing somewhere too. Um, she was living in Alaska. So she spends tons of time in silence. You have to understand that. She's taken vows where she spends a lot of time in silence most of her life. She will talk to people. She does engage, but she spends time alone a lot of time reaching out into the silence. So she's doing this embodied kind of practice and she's in nature and stuff like that. So years ago when she was younger, she was living in Alaska and she was up in this area where there's no one around. She was in a cabin and she got up in the morning and she was spending tons of time in silence and the cabin doesn't have a TV or a radio or anything. Yeah. So she went out to pick berries for breakfast. So she knew there was a raspberry bush. She went out walked on the trail, got to the raspberry bush. Quietly, just sitting there picking the raspberries. And all of a sudden, she said, I didn't smell anything. I didn't hear anything. Yeah. I didn't see anything. No sensory input. Yeah. Nothing changed. But all of a sudden, she got this feeling in the pit of her stomach, mm -hmm. really sick. Mm -hmm. Hair went up on the back of her neck. Wow. And a voice in her head said, get the hell out of here right now. And so without even questioning, she just yep. like turned back around, had her basket and walked the trail. Now it was, I guess, a switchback trail. Like, so it's going okay. cut back and forth. Yep. And so she went back and forth, back and forth up to the thing. And as she climbed up, as she turned the corner and looked back down and she could see down, she saw the bushes where she was and stepped out of the bushes, grizzly bear. Yeah. Yeah. And she said to me, how did I know? Yes. And I said, I don't know. I was waiting for the answer. Like, I don't know. How did you know that? <laughs> yeah. How did you know? And she said, I don't know. And she says, I, my suggestion, and I think this is a legitimate scientific, you know, again, how sure. science would be coincidence, weird, right? Yeah. But I, come on, we lived for how long, how many generations as our DNA Yes. knew about things in the woods. We would have yeah. had to survive. There has to be some kind of sixth sense, some kind of mm -hmm, like mm -hmm. something underneath our consciousness that's just kind of scanning the horizon, some kind of subtle pheromones, something yes. that I think is just an embodied thing that right now our scale, you know, our scientific instruments can't measure. Yeah. And our body just knows it. And so she said, I got the sense that I was in touch with a kind of a primal science, like silent embodied knowing. Yes. And she says, could you imagine if I was, you know, like everybody else just a, in my head, daydreaming, yes. thinking, yep. she goes, I would have been dead. Yep. Yes. And I'm like, exactly. Right. So there's a kind of a part of her and a part of us that's doing that all day, but we've trained ourselves to turn that off because we don't need to scan the horizon for grizzly bears. And so we've kind of like deadened 
a lot of sensory input, and then we deaden it, so then the world feels dead to us. Yeah, we've lost, I mean, we've de we've deadened, we've lost something ourselves in that. Mm -hmm. I mean, we really lost something. As I hear you talking about these other ways of knowing um, and this in-betweenness that, you, you know, we're weird human beings, I yeah. sort of agree with you. Yeah. Like I hear, I hear two words keep coming up in my head and that maybe uh, I'm curious if you could, your thoughts on this, so two, they're, they're sort of geeky words again, we'll go totally. with that. Um, one word is uh, noose from yes. the Greek totally. and the other one is the imaginal. Yes. Totally. And and do those connect with silence? And, 100%. Um, and can you, can you unpack that a little bit for us? Yeah. So, I mean, so I think here, I think noose. So for those, for those yeah. non-geeks, uh, noose, that Greek word was used, again, because the ancient world, all the way up into the modern world, uh, we had this model of the mind where we understood that there was these two things going on. Yeah. And so there was ratio. Uh, and then there would be reason, something like, yeah, and that reason, would be reason yeah. and thinking this, what yeah. we do, Up rational. neurocortex. Yeah, the dianoia, right? Diagnostic. Yep. We're thinking, yep. we're doing stuff. And then there would be something like, I guess if I'm going to stay Latin, it would be like intellectus, right? Mm -hmm. so, um, so if I did the Greek, dianoia, and then there would be something like epinoia. And you see mm -hmm. the word noi in there is this mm -hmm. is where you get the word noose. Noose is a kind of knowing. And in the Greek, oftentimes it was used to describe when our consciousness would shift into kind of an apprehension or a receiving of reality mm -hmm. that wasn't in the intellect, in, in the, um, not, don't, okay, not in the thinking process, not in yeah. the diagnostic, not in the yeah. rational. Yeah. And so you would receive reality and it was considered a consciousness and an awareness and in a thinking, yes. but it was a thinking without thinking. It was this apprehension. And wasn't it sort of almost located in the heart region yes. of the body? So absolutely. So this is the word heart, right? So mm. when you say things, a lot of cultures talk about knowing by heart. We still say yes. that. Yeah. You know it not by memorizing it and like I have to think it. Mm -hmm. You just, if you know it by heart, you just know it. It's there. It's embodied in you and yeah. you could just pull it out any second. Um, so you can start off doing something in your head. If you mm -hmm. do it enough, it goes into your body, it's in your heart, and then you have access to it constant. Long-term memory, mm -hmm. et cetera, et cetera, would be mm -hmm. something along these lines is moving in this direction. And so noose, apprehension, you know, somehow kind of knowing in an embodied way, yeah. the ancient world knew this. And so, yes, yeah. it's this recovery of noose. It's this recovery of another way of knowing that is complementary and necessary to be a full human you needed to do both yeah because that's how you received reality you needed to do both and we had to do it like i said in the past you were forced to develop this part of your mind uh because you needed for awareness and in, in to survive civilization took that off our plate and yeah. so now unless you program it unless you say to yourself hey let me take some silent time hey let me go walk in the woods yeah. hey let me do this there's no need to develop that skill anymore and so we lose it as toddlers, we have it and yeah. we, you know, but then over time we go to school and we train this other one, it gets stronger. So it's like a muscle imbalance. It's like, it's like your bicep is stronger than your tricep, yeah. you know, like all you're doing is training one muscle over and over and over yeah. again. Um, and you're like this other skill atrophies. And so, yes, it's news. 
And then imaginal is this piece, again, the silent piece. Imaginal is, again, in that place. It's like the liminal Mm -hmm. where I think that's where, like, storytelling, mythology, the vision, imagination comes from because you're in that place that's halfway between noose and and uh, ratio, right? I mean, uh, right? It's in that space where it's got a little bit of this embodied thing. It's not here yeah. uh, in a physical way. It's in. It's kind of in a spiritual way here. Yeah. You can do it in your head or in your spirit. You can receive a vision. It's dreamlike. Mm-hmm. Dreams are in this space here. So it's in this really weird in between state. Um, yeah. That your rational mind has access to on some level, yeah, but doesn't have total control over. Yeah, and then this other side, it's like it's like you know we like people say, oh, I received a vision. It came from somewhere else. Mm-hmm. The muse sent it to me. An insight yeah. came in, or a dream yeah. entered. So it's like you feel like you're coming from two sides. Yeah, and the imaginal kind of sits there as a doorway in. And so you can do imaginative practice. That would be another way where you can start to stop. If you need to think, well, let's do some thinking that's imaginative. Mm -hmm. And that will start to slowly lose the analytical and the controlling. Imagination is kind of open. It's it's almost a doorway to trees and Mm -hmm. rocks and... Mm -hmm. uh, nature too it's there's this it's not magical and it's not uh i was going to say irrational right it's a rational it's it's stepping outside of rationality but it doesn't mean it's it doesn't mean it goes against rationality it doesn't mean it goes against our science and our best thinking it's not that it's just this other moment and and you know all we're talking about here is like noticing the limits of rationality, mm-hmm. you know, and then noticing that there's something else, and that can't we put that other thing here on the table and integrate it? Yeah. You know, that you asked that question about integration. Yeah. Is like I just want to integrate that, and that should be the process. Good yeah. thinking should be a constant exploration of the wilderness and come back. Humans have always been liminal. Mm-hmm, we've mm-hmm. we've always been a tribal people who lived in the wilderness, but kind of had our own tribe, our mm-hmm. own technology, our own culture. We did our thing, and yet we'd always go into the wilderness. So we were always yes. doing that, in and out, in and out, in and out. And now we've technology and control has gotten so strong that we can actually manipulate entire weather systems. You know, we can pollute oh. the planet. We can do yeah. all sorts of things. Um and so then we think it's an illusion of control that we have control of all things. Yeah. Well, and we're at this point, like we're, we're in a pandemic that's been par- partially created by climate change, our control. Yep. And yep. Uh, I mean, we have our human system messes too, but at a, at a planet level, it's like, oh my g- goodness, uh, we're in trouble. Right. Yeah. And it's this, what we're talking about to me is so important and i guess uh for me i what i hear when i hear you talking i hear like a a very simple doorway to to enter into this integrative exploration of how to heal myself and the planet that's right that's right because if we can go like going circling back around if we can go to the noose if we can go to the you know cross out of rationality and go back into wilderness yeah 
uh, I will see ultimate reality, mm-hmm. you know? And I mean, if you're an atheist, you could just go, you know, whatever humanist secular thing that you, mm-hmm. that you think organizes all of, you know, so you'll see all of reality, but religious people would call that the divine, you know? Yeah. And so, uh, whatever that, that moving principle is, but then it's also the space of, uh, the other inside of us, that wild mm-hmm. part of us that we can't yep. control. Yeah. <laughs> and then the other. Yes. The, 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 whether it's the tree or my neighbor, you know, yep. my next door neighbor who lives across the street right here, I can see her house. So, I mean, whether it's this tree right here or that we're my neighbor, uh, my personal neighbor, another human being, uh, we're, uh, that's the space. We all become one. So going there and spending time there, I recognize yeah. that healing the planet, healing myself and healing my neighbor is one thing. Yes. Yeah. You know, and, and, and so we're, I, I constantly say, I think a lot of people are just stressed and anxious. We're on screens mm-hmm. and we're doing, because that's all ratio. That's all control. Yes. Um, everything about our culture is control. And where is the space to recognize this weird imaginal space? You know, by definition, our rationality wants to dismiss this. Mm-hmm. And and that's why I find it really interesting, like thinkers, like for instance, um, so we just talking about Maggie Ross going off and talking yeah. about the grizzly bear, but like uh, the philosopher David Abram wrote a book, The Spell of the Sensuous, and then he wrote Becoming Animal. And he's a philosopher and he just said, look, I, I study rationality and he's yeah. recovering this idea of animism mm-hmm. where he mm-hmm. says, look, I want to take seriously that the tree and everything is alive, has a spirit. Yeah. Yeah. And so native cultures and first nations and all that who've, who've told us, you know, the trees are alive, the river is alive, the clouds are alive. And he's like, yes. He's like, mm-hmm. I'm a thinker, a rationality person. And he says, I know what this means. I've spent time in the woods. I've done this stuff with shamans mm-hmm. and natives. And he goes, when I first showed up, I thought it was all irrational and I was judging. Yeah. After I spent time and watched my body and my mind, I realized, ho, and then he started to unpack exactly what I started to uncover is that, wait a minute, there's this noose, there's this other thing, and all that language about spirit and soul is just trying to describe the indescribable Mm -hmm. of this in-between state. You know, as a human, there's something more than thinking. That thinking is a piece of this other piece. Yeah. And... You need to do that. And then when you do that, that reshapes and reframes that then maybe we should reinvestigate. Let's go back. And maybe we rejected pagan thinking or religious thinking or spirituality as stupid, as superstitious. You go back and you go, hold on. Maybe with this lens, maybe it's a little more scientific and rational than we thought. Mm -hmm. And maybe it actually fits. And, you know, granted, there is magical thinking, there's bad thinking, there's superstition, there's conspiracy thinking. I I am not for any (laughs) bad thinking. I'm not trying to be messy. But but I think the problem is is that for a lot of people, I'm a recovering academic, in my circles, hyper-rational. And if you can't prove it in a lab, dismiss it. So it leads to kind of a very deep kind of atheistic, secular, da, 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 da. And that would be fine if I felt like that was the truth. Mm-hmm. If I felt like really literally that was true. But if you find yourself in these wild spaces, I could never believe 
when it, somebody said to me, well, there is no other thing. And I'd be like, yeah, but I, I felt it. Yeah. <laughs> and then they would say to me, well, you're deceiving again, right? Well, you're deceiving yourself. That's a psychological trick of the mind. Mm. And again, I, okay, I guess. Right. Yeah. But if that's the case, then like, I almost can't even trust my rationality because my mind can trick me in such deep sure. ways. Oh, and, yeah. you know, I mean, that's the whole Rene Descartes, I think, therefore I am, trying to find certainty, trying to say, hey, what can I bend? And it, it just really traps us in this kind of solipsistic, kind of centered, individualistic kind of thing. Yeah. And that's what we've leashed out. That's that yes. empire controlling whatever way. Um, yeah. That's just a hyper individual uh, trying to control everything, you know. Yeah. Um, when this is about coming home to mm. who we really are, that there's a piece yeah. of us that we're ignoring. Yeah. I love that coming home to who we really are. That, that, yeah. Silence and wildness, wilderness, um, this in between human. And I think when I, when I've listened to you and, and your stories and everything, the, the word I, the word I hear, if you want is that, that coming home is where I, where at least for me, I, mean, I don't know about you, is where, where I sense awe. Mm -hmm. Yep. And I don't, I don't mean the, uh, like uh, the awe where everything's splitting open, you know that, like, but sort of this, it's like it's bodily. Yes. Yes. It's, it's that profound moment of when the mind when the rational mind just stops, it's, it's blown wide open because what is actually happening? And I, and I say this to my students all the time. I'm like, they come into class, you know, it's so funny. Like we're bored, right? I mean, students are bored. We're all bored. Like, and I said to them, like, I'll say, I'm, I'm that professor. I'm the weird professor, right? They come in and I'll be like, I could see the look on their face. They don't want to take my class. It's a core class. It's philosophy. It's religion. They're like, ugh. You know, yeah. I'm a business major or I'm a doctor, <laughs> you know, I'm a pre-med yeah. major or something. I'm a math major or something Lawyer. like an engineer. And like, I have to be in this class talking about this superstition or philosophy, mm -hmm. random nonsense and philosophy or whatever. And I'll say, isn't it fascinating? I say, let's be really rational for a second. What's happening right now? And they're all like, we're in class. I'm like, no, come on, really? What's happening right now? I was like, pay attention. I'm like your body has got all mm. these trillions of cells. They're multiplying, mm -hmm. they're dying. Mm -hmm. There's all these processes going on. I'm yeah. like, you are on a rock that is spinning through this infinite galaxies and galaxies and around a ball, this huge exploding ball of gas called the sun. And it's spinning at hundreds of thousands of miles an hour. And we're on this axis and stars are spinning and exploding. Yeah. And, and we're like, and we sit here and go bored. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, it's like the most unbelievable fireworks show that's yes. going on. Yes. It's overwhelming so yep. that we then just crawl into our little ego mm. and we make little patterns. And we're like, yep. I've seen this before. There's my neighbor. There's my school. That's a tree. That's yeah. a bird. Here's my coffee. I've seen all of this before. No, you haven't. Yeah. No, you have. And I say that all the time. I'm like, we know scientific. You don't even have to be religious. Yeah. Scientifically. Everything is constantly flowing. Cells yeah. are dying. New yeah. ones are coming into being. 
everything's changing constantly. So you have never seen this before. It's a trick of your mind to pretend I've seen this pattern before so you don't freak out. Your mind says to you, oh, you've seen this before. It's okay. I was like, and now you buy that lie because if you take the science, none of this you've seen before and you'll never see again. Yeah. So if you can tap into that and have this awe and not be overwhelmed. Yeah. See, because that's the other thing you could... (laughs) You take that ego away, that ego might be the only thing holding you together. Sure, that's true. And all of a sudden I take the ego away and that poor person who's just been trying to get through the day is now like they're in a fetal position rocking and sucking their thumb because they think everything in life is chaos and I can't handle it, right? So I get the ego is a beautiful thing. It helps us. Yes. And it helps us function and do and it's it's doing what it's supposed to do just like thinking is. But- to to take your ego and your thinking as if I've seen this all before, I know this all before, as the, as the every philosopher says, you know, Plato, philosophy begins in wonder. Mm. It begins in awe. That, you know, we should, atheists, it doesn't matter, the, theist or atheist, we all mm-hmm. should be worshiping. I remember the, yeah. the talk, uh, what, what, what's his name? Uh, the famous writer of... Um, Infinite Jest. David Foster Wallace? That's that- it. David Foster Wallace? Yes. So he has a talk. He actually gave a talk, and it's called This is Water. Hmm. Um, and I often cite it to students. It's a, he, it was a college graduation talk. And he, got a, he was a literary professor and unfortunately committed suicide a few years later hmm. uh, after he gave this talk. But he, made the, he was an atheist. Um, but he was spiritually haunted because he would say— this in between. He felt this pull. Mm. And he said, every human, and this, as an atheist, he said this, every human worships something. Mm. There's something higher than them that pulls them in awe. And he goes, now that thing you might worship might be money, power, the mind, you know, intellectual, whatever. But there's something that's organizing your life, this higher principle that organizes your life and that dictates to you and has the rules and regulations. And he says, and you worship it. Um, because you recognize there's some other state more than yeah. you know, yeah. um, and that you are limited, and so that yeah. you you feel this emptiness, this this doorway out. And he's like, he talked about it. He's like, as an atheist, I recognize this. And he says, and I so I totally understand a theist. He says mm-hmm. because honestly, and he makes the comment, uh, worshiping Christ or Buddha or or Krishna mm-hmm. makes way more sense than worshiping money. <laughs> because, because at least they, those other beings are compassionate, yeah. merciful. They have a higher calling than some of this like low level, just yes. greed yeah. or something, you yeah. know, or he's like, or- yeah, or beauty. He's like, you know, if you can do a lot. He goes, I like money. I like lust. I like all those mm-hmm. things. Mm-hmm. He says, but they don't really get you too far. At some point you yeah. recognize there's a limit. Whereas when you start to see things like awe, mercy, yeah. compassion, th- those seem limitless. Yeah. And they open doors to something deeper. And he's like, and so I can appreciate those religious people pursuing that path, even though I don't take that path. Yeah. Um, so, so yeah, I mean, I think awe and wonder and curiosity is, are there are great words about, can we need to have that moment of embodied practice to be actually who we are? Yeah. And I love that really to worship wilderness, wildness, and even silence uh, uh, brings that infinite part 
for me, uh, the, 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 the way if you really want to be a experiential scientist is to go for the walk. Yes. Go for the yeah. walk, go spend the, the time walk. in quiet, um, d- focusing on breath. You know, I mean, some of the very basic stuff I'll tell people all the time, if you do some very basic mindfulness exercises, the reason mindfulness or meditation or any of the things that are kind of hip in yeah. in a lot of circles now, the reason that stuff works is because what, as you said before, Trevor, about you're slowly moving away from thinking. Mm-hmm. It's allowing your mind to slow down mm-hmm. and to actually just be present. It's over. It's just, can you just be present and in your body? and stop talking about it and judging it and labeling it. We do that all day long and you will get back to it because you need to. Yeah. But can you have another moment that will supplement and add to your thinking? You said, I just think this is good science. Mm -hmm. Good scientists get more data. Data. Get more data, receive as much information from the world so you can think about it better. Yeah. You know, if you're just going to constantly think about what you already know, that's a very limited kind of thinking. So you need as much data from the world as you can get. And the only way you can get data is if you receive it. So you drop the thinking for a second and say, what's happening right now? And be present to it and get excited about it. Like, enjoy it. Yeah. Your body becomes the microscope. Yeah. As a metaphor. Yeah. You you get to see how the world, what is it like when the world enters here Mm -hmm. what's it like and then and some and you're going to notice it we filter it as it comes in some Mm -hmm. days it comes in and it's turbulent some days we come in and it's awesome and not turbulent you know and and that's fine that's more data yeah more data and and that it's okay i tell people all that the other thing i tell them all the time there's no one way to do this don't try to fit it into some kind of template where you have to do it one way or join some group um, this is a human being doing this. Yeah. Uh, and if you do this and you don't judge, you do it nonviolently, as you said, and you open up and you embody it, then what happens is that you actually will understand your own life. And if you're a religious person or you're an atheist, you will understand your own philosophical system better. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Because what's funny, you were saying about worship, you know, even our translation of the Bible and stuff is all civilized and we lost mm-hmm. the silence. So mm-hmm. all the modern translations have translated the word silence out of the Bible. Mm-hmm. And I forget it's some, my co-host on encountering silence, Carl McCollman made this point. He, he talked to a rabbi about this in Hebrew, Psalm 64, 62, 60, like I forget which one it was, but like yeah. the trans, the, the translation is something like my my soul waits for you in silence, O Lord, mm. is kind of what we say. Yeah. And they, he talked to a rabbi, and the actual translation is in Hebrew, if you read it, it's silence is praise to you, O Lord. Mm. So silence is a worship. Yes. Silence is worship. Yeah. So in other words, when you go for your walk, and you're just there, and you're not talking to yourself, and you're just present, that is a form of prayer for all those religious people. Yeah. It, that's a form of prayer. And yeah. and for you atheists, it's a form of consciousness that informs who you are. Hmm. Wow. Thank you so much for this journey, Kevin, and sharing of your life and your recovery. <laughs> yes. I'm trying to figure out who I am. I'm trying to recover more of myself and recover 
I think it's a great way. Thank you for inviting me and allowing me to share this idea. This was part of the recovery, the recovery of the second way of knowing, the recovery of wilderness, that basically we just left some tools and some models along, and I want to go back and blow the dust off and say those are still useful for us. Can we recover those? Because then we can have an embodied recovery and we can heal. We can become whole. What sparked your curiosity in this episode? Do you sense a resiliency that was hidden before? From the conversation, where is hope leading you? If you are enjoying this podcast, please subscribe, consider rating it, and sharing it with family and friends. This podcast is produced by McKillop United Church. Thank you for joining us, and thank you for the generosity of all of our donors. If you want to support this podcast, go to patreon.com or mckillopunited.ca slash donate. Peace and blessings to you.